we have to be conscious and we have to rise up another way of being. The more we fight this, this systems that have been killing our planet and our well-being, this patriarchy that we have been living under, this isn't anti-men, this is anti-a system where fame, success, money and profit over anything else is the tenets of the society that we've grown in. The only way we can change this is by a rise in consciousness and people showing other ways and shining a light on that. With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope and I'm your host for season six of Bookshelfie, the podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. Join me and my incredible guests as we talk about the books you'll be adding to your 2023 reading list. Hello, welcome back to the podcast. This year's Women's Prize for Fiction long list is out now and not to be missed. To discover the 16 brilliant authors and their books, head over to our website, www.womensprizeforfiction.co.uk. I am so pleased to welcome the marvellous Mary Porters to the podcast today. Mary is one of the UK's most well-known and innovative people in business. She made a name turning Harvey Nichols into a global fashion destination. By the age of just 30, she was on the board of directors. At 37, she left corporate life to launch Portas, her own creative company, with the mission to turn businesses into brands, places and spaces people want in their lives. She's been a regular on our TV screens, advised the government on the future of high streets and developed a fashion label. She's the author of Shop Girl, Work Like a Woman and most recently, Rebuild, How to Thrive in the New Kindness Economy. Welcome to the podcast, Mary. Lovely to be here. I have just been having a little chat with you and you sound very well read. You you were advising us on like all sorts of books that that we could be reading that are coming out (laughs) soon. You're a big reader. I am, um, but I'm a dipper as well. Mm. So I have a pile next to my bed. I mean, I've always got a really good novel I try and have on the go or a very, very good autobiography or biography. I love that mix. And then I have poetry and then I have some really good spiritual books or great sort of mentors and thinkers. So... Yeah, I'm a bit sort of peripatetic in the way my mind works, mm-hmm. but I do I do read a lot and I love sharing it. Yeah, I, there's nothing better than pressing a brilliant book into someone else's hands and passing that story on. As long as you get it back. As long as you get it back. Which actually, I'm going to yeah. use this platform yeah. to uh, call out a couple of my friends who still have a couple of my books that they've had for years. Yeah. I think you should note it down. It's interesting because I was with my pal on Monday night. She came out for supper and she said, have you got Penelope Fitzgerald? Because I said, I'm sure I haven't. I'm really sure I haven't kept your Penelope Fitzgerald. <laughs> and then we're going to the shop and there it was. And I was so embarrassed because I really try my best to get them back to people. And they are, they're like friends to me. And, and sometimes I see them on the bookshelf and I just have that little warm sort of fuzzy feeling. Or not, not necessarily that, but definitely a, a reaction to when I read that. Or should I read that again? I'm not a great reader on, on reading again, but some I am sort of, you know, spurred on to do. And I don't want people taking that. I want to share it. I yeah. want to share the love. It's like sharing your home or a great dinner party. But, you know, 
don't go off. Oh, and you go <laughs> home the at the end of the night. Yeah. <laughs> are, are you suggesting that perhaps we should be keeping receipts? We should be no, keeping no. a note. I was just thinking because I, I said to Kate, I said, you know, you should just write down. We should have written down what we swap because we we do yeah. swap. So I, we don't do that again. I thought I should note that. And then my daughter moved out, and I noticed she because she loves her bookshelf. But a lot of my books were on that bookshelf, and I was like, Verity, those are mine. She, but I read them after you, Mama. I went, <laughs> yeah. Where do I go with this one? <laughs> Where do you fit reading in, in in your day to day? Oh, I'm nighttime. It's nighttime or weekends with a cup of coffee in bed so that I know I'm relaxed. I, I couldn't read in the morning. To me, reading, it's my time. It's special. It's relaxation. This is Mary time. And so there's no way I could do it in, in um, the daytime. I just, I, I've never been that. And I, do, I have got friends that do that. They'll curl up with a book at about mm. three o'clock. Well, I'd be falling asleep on the sofa. So it just, and I'm, I'm never one who sits still for very long. Anymore. Or some people schedule that time. They're yeah, like, yeah, this yeah. is my do reading they? time. It's almost in my diary, like a do part they? of my day. Yeah. Yeah. No, actually, I don't like anything in my diary, if I'm honest. Not a single thing. No, I take each day as it comes. And my team have had to really get used to this. I mean, there's things I have to put in, but I don't approach a date until it's the, the day before and then I'm looking to go. But if there's anything too much in my diary, I, I find it just makes my mind go too crazy. So I don't like it. And I think nothing better than a completely clear diary and then thinking, oh, I feel like seeing this person. I mean, they might not be around, but I really love that. This is something I could definitely learn from. I feel like there are just too many tabs open in my virtual desktop. Yeah. And it, it does then translate into the iCal. It's yeah. it's packed. It doesn't need to be necessary. No, it doesn't. And I've really been, got as I've got older, got really you know good at that. Yeah. Just Just being. And from being, I then do, as opposed to doing and not being. I think that's a mantra for life that we can all learn a little <laughs> bit from. Well, we're here to talk about your favourite books, whether they are on your shelf or a friend's or your daughter's. And your first bookshelfy book is Angel by Elizabeth Taylor. Um, not that Elizabeth Taylor. This brilliant book is written by the English novelist and short story writer. It follows the fanciful 15-year-old Angel who writes extravagant romantic stories to escape her drab provincial life. After reading Angel's novel, The Lady... I don't know if it's Irania or Urania. I don't know. The Lady... Should we do Urania? We'll say Urania. Yeah, it sounds like The it. Lady Urania. Uh, publishers Brace and Gilchrist are certain it will be a success, but they are curious as to who could have written such a book. An elderly lady? A mustachioed rogue? They are not prepared for the pale, serious teenage girl who is really behind the pages. Tell us about this book. Why did you love it and why did you pick it? Well, first of all, picking books is ridiculously difficult. So it's like Desert Island Discs. And then you go back afterwards and you go, oh, I should have put that one in. But to me, you know, one of the things that you ask is that stuff that had an effect, do you remember it affecting your life? And that, so this one reminded me, Angel, of this, you know, myself as a younger child. Um, she was a terrible liar. And I was that. And I was one of five kids. And so I remember not feeling seen, really. You know, mm. I was the fourth out of five. And I created these worlds where I wanted to be in. And so much of what I read was in those worlds. And when I read Angel, and she would she would made, made out that her she lived in this wonderful house, but actually her aunt was the cleaner in this house. <laughs> and it's just an extraordinary... And I did the same. I remember, you know, telling people... Because I, I came from a sort of an Irish Catholic working class family in Watford. And I, we all went to the grammar school, like me and my uh, siblings. And there were the posh girls that were at the grammar school. 
their mothers would turn up in Jaguars to drop them off to school and we'd get oh. off the school bus. And so I would pretend that my father had a Jaguar, which he didn't. And I would embellish these lives. And Angel just talked to me. And I loved the character. But what she did that was so clever and I loved is she created that life and she became a successful writer because she worked herself into it. Mm. She, she, it was a sort of a path that she opened up by being rather than, you know, it, it was a path she wanted. And so she just opened it up herself and created her success through her writing and ended up very wealthy. And I sort of, it felt similar, although I realised, you know, all the times that I was embarrassed by coming from this working class Irish family, they were far more interesting now that I look back or, you know, or did. And I stopped lying when I was about um, 19 and um, it was just so refreshing because once you start telling the truth, so much opens up to you and you, you, there's no place of fear. There's no place where you come to hide. Did you write stories yourself? Were you, did you love <clears throat> words as a child? I loved words as a child and I enjoyed writing. I also enjoyed performing and so I learned an awful lot through being directed in plays. You know, quite young, going and doing plays like Brendan Bayon's The Hostage at, you know, 15 and really understanding subtext, which I would not have had access to. I joined local theatre groups and, you know, did check off and so much so early on. And to me, language and words was just wonderful. I'm not the best at writing, but I love expressing myself through words. And I'm often trying to write, even when I'm writing something, what I want to put on social, I'll go over it time and time again because the nuance of what language does is just extraordinary. And if it's done wrong, if someone's put something up on my behalf and there might just be one word that's wrong, it feels, I feel injured. I know I feel exactly the same. Words are so loaded yeah. they have to yes. be right and if they're yes. not I, I get quite anxious yes. about it that yes. the significance the meaning could be lost on anyone who misinterprets but as long as I've said what I wanted to say then I can't begrudge what's been put out into the world because I still own it yes that's exactly true I used to write my diary as a, as a child and I stopped completely and I haven't done so again. And part of me, I tried, but part of me, I wasn't able to express the depth of what yeah. I was going through. And so I didn't want to do it as an adult, which is a shame, I think. To but this is literally why I love books, because <clears throat> when you read the words of an author who has felt something that you have felt or thought and they articulate it in words that you could not find yourself. Oh, it's, completely. Oh, it's so it's so illuminating. You, that's when you're turning down the page and underlining, highlighting. So you're like, yes, you felt it too. I just didn't have the words and now I do. And which is why, you know, even describing this, you know, it's very difficult. But um, I think the one with Angel, why I loved it, A, I discovered Elizabeth Taylor as a writer and I don't think enough people know about her. I mean, her, her writing is fantastic. But B, she was put up against this anger and her, her mother was so angry with her for lying, you know, that she slaps her. And I had this sort of Catholic guilt, you know, that lying was a sin. And we used to have to go to confession, I don't know, every couple of months, which is ridiculous. These 12-year-old girl going into what was like a wardrobe with a priest sitting behind. And you'd be saying, bless me, Father, for I've sinned. And what like, sins have you done when you're 12? And so <laughs> your naughtiness and your expression in the world where you're developing becomes a sin. Is crazy, you know, crazy. You've described um, yourself in your memoir as um, something of a trouble magnet. Um, <laughs> uh, you just mentioned as well the ways in which, you know, you would embellish and lie very similarly to Angel in this book. And, and there are obvious parallels, there are clear parallels in the yeah. way that 
she creates her own success. Yes. Um, and the way that you forged your own path, has, has success on your terms been something that has always been important to you? Oh, I don't think it was on my terms for a long time. Right. Following the death of my mother when I was 16 and my father when I was 18, I felt just lost and I think it was survival. And I think a huge amount of fear. So I, I just knew I didn't have a home and I didn't have money. And there wasn't that comfort of anyone at the end of a phone yeah. who, who was your sage or your guide. And so it was terribly difficult. And I, I just survived. And I, I think I became a person that I deeply wasn't. I wasn't allowed to express my sensitivity. I felt I had to succeed in order to, you know, feed myself and, and live, really. <laughs> um, and so it certainly wasn't on my terms for a long time. And then when I did hit, after having my children and had, you know, great success, by which time I, you know, was creative director for Harvey Nichols and leading a very lovely luxury life, I actually just realised who I was and worked a lot with that, but just through actually a skill that I felt I had and then was able to go, actually, I'm going to go this road. And that road was a path. I always say it to anybody who ever comes in or you know, young women that I talk to particularly, when people ask you what your five-year plan or passion is, don't be, it's just crazy. How do we even know this? Mm. But let it unfold. And the ability to let life unfold is just the most beautiful thing if you're able to do it. And I wasn't for a long time, but I was very successful. So it was very difficult to go, this wasn't unfolding. This was me pushing yeah. <laughs> and creating, and as Sheryl Sandberg would have said, leaning into a system that quite frankly was horrendous, most business systems are. Um, and so I didn't do it on my terms, but I'm certainly on my terms now. And what does on your terms mean? What does that look like? It's more what it feels like. Mm. I don't do anything, unless it's for my children, <laughs> that goes against my inner frequency or energy where I know it's not right. So many times in life we ignore those little whispers uh, that are telling us something's not right. Um, and so I try and follow what is my light, as it were, and let it open up to me in the way that Rumi talks about. You just let the path open up mm. and you just take one step at a time. You don't create the path because it's all disappointment because you never reach that. And when people used to say it's the journey, not the end goal, never went, I just go, what are they on about? But it is. It really is. It really is. It's time to talk about your second book now which is The Death and Life of Great American Cities by mm. Jane Jacobs. In this classic 1961 text, Jacobs, an American-Canadian journalist and author, set out to produce an attack on current city planning and rebuilding and to introduce new principles by which these should be governed. The result is a damning but fundamentally optimistic indictment of the short-sightedness and arrogance that has characterised urban planning in the 20th century and beyond. How can we pick this book? Well, I mean, look, I could have picked, I don't know, 20 novels. <laughs> but I had to, I picked things that were so important to me. And Jane Jacobs, when I was asked by the government to look at the high street um, that were all failing, at the time I was travelling a lot and filming a lot, and I would turn up in towns and see the devastation that commerce had done, that planning laws had done. 
So, you know, we went in the chase of money, profit over anything. We have lived in a society, I've lived in a society where, where money, fame and power are the tenets of success. Mm. And so I was traveling and seeing these desolate towns where massive supermarkets would build on the edge of town. And I'd get picked up by the taxi drivers because I'd be filming to go and save some independent shop. And uh, I'd turn up and there'd be a boarded up shop, there'd be a chicken shop, there'd be a basement booze, and you'd see these young kids hanging on streets with nothing to do. And um, they'd say, but oh no, the Tesco's have been brilliant, they've built a swimming pool. They've really given back to the community. <laughs> and I used to think, is that really giving back? Is this what we've got? And anyway, I got approached by the government to look at this, and I did so. And at first, I went in with my financial business head on. How do we create commerce? How do we get retail back onto these high streets? Now, this is a time when it was also, you know, the rise and rise of the internet planning laws where they'd let all the supermarkets build out of town because land was cheaper, people could park there for nothing, people were loading up their cars with food, half of which some of them were throwing away. This was before even consciousness mm. was coming. You know, It was a small groups, pressure groups, who talked about how we were living very little else. And I discovered Jane Jacobs. And she really just opened my eyes up to what is a fundamental truth that the way we live and where we live, our cities, our high streets, it's not about what they sell. It's not about commerce. It's about the social infrastructure and the safety that they give to our well-being. Now, you and I live locally to each other, and how joyful is it on a Saturday, as we know, if we want to pop out for a coffee? It's a community. It's a massive community, yeah. right? Or a loaf of bread, or you're walking down to Primrose Hill with your dog and you bump into three people yeah. or someone. They say, oh, my God, I'm just going to pop into the bookshop and I might, I've might i got a little account there, so I'll shout into the woman and say, can you order whatever book? She talked about these things. They might seem trivial, but the sum isn't trivial at all. It's the way most of us want to live and feel safe in this world. And that most urban planning has been done by men who were not at home during the day bringing up those children. We're talking the 60s here, mm -hmm. and let's face it, not too dissimilar today. They're not there. They were making those decisions, and we ended up with the ugly, ugly... I mean, do you ever drive to a town and think, who decided mm. that this retail park on the edge of town is actually where people want to shop? And believe you me... You've got me on this now. I've heard some of the big CEOs saying this is what people want. No, they don't. You've taken away their choice. And so I started to write my report around this. And, and I'd go into government and they would say to me, have you met with the CEO of Sainsbury's? And I said, of course I have. But what's he going to tell me about community? Have you met with Sir Philip Green? And I think, sadly, I have. But what's he going to tell me about how we should be living? And she became my girl. And she got vilified and, you know, all these men just knocked her. But the truth is there. The truth is, and we saw it during COVID, what do we want? We want to feel safe. We feel connected when we're in a community where we can live and have our needs met, our daily needs met. Now, if we look at this and look at the trauma that the planet's going through, that has to be the future. 
We shouldn't be driving anywhere. We should be having all our needs met within 15 minutes of walking or cycling and green spaces. Jane Jacobs, head of the game, and I still hold a light and hopefully can be a voice for what she envisioned. Well, we're recording this um, actually on a day when we're seeing some of the biggest strike action in a decade. Yeah. Uh, teachers, train drivers, yeah. uh, bus drivers and more joining picket lines yeah. today. How do you think that we solve the structural issues that we are facing, that we continue to face, that seem to be getting worse? The honest answer, we have to be conscious and we have to rise up another way of being. The more we fight this, this systems that have been killing our planet and our well-being, this patriarchy that we have been living under, this isn't anti-men, this is anti-a-system, of patriarchy, which I talked about before, where fame, success, money, and profit over anything else is the tenets of the society that we've grown in. Now, if there's anybody today who doesn't realize that that is killing Mother Earth and with us our well being, then they are in that group who we are seeing, not who's on strike, but the governments and the systems and the businesses that are still working to that. The only way we can change this is by a rise in consciousness and people showing other ways and shining a light on that. Shining a light and saying, you could be working this way. We've seen so much change happen. and We don't show it. And when I did my podcast, Beautiful Misfits, and I'm about to film with Channel 4, I think they're calling it the climate fight. I don't like the word fight. But it's to show great people who are saying there's another way to live. And I often talk about it, it's a very simple example, but I say, well, we had the Arcadia group, the likes of Sir Philip Green, who I think he extracted something like 2.5 billion as a bonus. 10 years ago, that was seen as, wow, wow, God, this guy knows what he's doing. And on the other hand, you've got Patagonia that's been going since the 70s, making millions and millions of profit. And the actual owner has said the only shareholder, he's given his whole business over to a trust. And he says the only shareholder is Mother Earth. Yeah. Now, I think the Arcadia Group's collapsed. We've lost Topshop. We've lost all those brands. This is still going. And I go, so that's what I call a beautiful business of the future. Why can't we do this? So the more we show that there is another way, the more we're conscious and aware and that's what's happening. That's why these people are striking, saying, do you know what? I don't want to work like this anymore. I don't want to be like this anymore. And our government is just not getting the memo. They're just not getting it. So we need a rising of the, another way of living. And it's coming. It's coming, but it needs to come faster. And most of that rising will be around the divine feminine that we suppressed for years. The mystical, the way that we lived connected to the earth. We've suppressed that. You didn't talk about that. You were seen as woohoo. Yeah. You know, if you talked about in a business, if you didn't use the speak about profit first, you know, I've been in this. You were seen as weak. You know, I remember someone in my business sacking our head of buying and saying, don't take it personally. It's only business. That's how we looked at the world. You know, we, we put these multi, multi billionaires up there on pedestals. We need to change that. And it is changing. The reason we're, we're talking here, you're feeling it. 
Yeah, because I, and I feel like we are able to say these things. You're of course so you right are. in a way that um, doesn't feel woohoo anymore. And I don't care. And, I, and it doesn't I don't matter. Care. We, doesn't we, matter. We needn't be shamed. Yeah. We needn't be embarrassed. Every single guest we've had on this podcast has said the same thing yeah. about different sectors or the different areas of their life yeah. in which we need to be having different conversations or looking at things in different ways. And we need to question everything. I watched um, Simon Sharma's brilliant series. If anyone hasn't watched it, do watch it. It's extraordinary. And he talks and shows how cultural shifts that change society. And so often it came from the arts world, yeah. you know, from the actors, from the music industry. And I went and watched the brilliant film of Nan Golden, who went up against. If anyone gets a chance to watch that, it's incredible. Um, and she went up against the big drug companies who were putting all the money into the museums, the Sacklers. It's just brilliant. And we need to show more of this. And we don't enough. And the media doesn't enough. We get the bad news. So people become apathetic. But don't be. Don't be. The more that we all unite together and talk about this and change and stand up and say, I don't think that's right, the better and the more hope we have of changing the world. On that note... Mm. We move on to your third bookshelfy book, which is The Cost of Living by oh, Deborah Levy. I just loved it. In the second of her Living Autobiography mm. series, two-time Booker Prize finalist Deborah Levy draws on her own personal experiences, including the end of her marriage and the death of her mother, to explore the subtle erasure of women and reflect on what is involved in breaking away from expected gender roles. Can you tell us about when you first read this book? Why did it resonate with you? Oh, well, I've read all of hers and just loved every part of them. I mean, I just think she's one of the great, our greatest writers and, and extraordinary. And it resonated with me, you know, because I was going through such a, a massive change in my life. And so often we sit with what we have and we feel we can't make change happen. And I've been blessed enough to know that I can stand on this earth on my own. And fear in the early days, I didn't think I could through loss. And so I surrounded myself with a lot of stuff and a lot of people and a lot of family, which of course is wonderful. But actually when it comes to it, we have to be able to stand on our own. And I couldn't put him in, but the poet Rilke, who's one of my favorites, you know, often talks about living the questions and um, that solitude is deeply important to that. And I've, I've sought that so much. But reading Deborah's and how she decided to leave a marriage, and I, I just had these visions of her struggling on the hill in the rain in North London to this flat that she had, um, and her change in life as a woman in her 50s, um, and how she had to you know, bring her daughter with her and her identity as a woman, now as a single woman, it just resonated. But she takes these moments that are just so exquisitely described, I can't, I can't mm. do her justice, other than to say I think she's a magnificent writer. But so much of it resonated with where I had you know, decided a marriage was over. And you don't do that easily. You don't do it easily. But you can do it with a deep sensitivity to the people who you may be leaving and changing their lives. And she talks about that. It just felt secure for me that there was someone else in the world who was going through that. And 
you know, I was going through a terribly difficult time with it. And, you know, everything that I'd learned through my kind of philosophical and spiritual teachers <laughs> went right out the window. And somehow to know that there was this incredible other woman in the world that was changing her life because that whisper happened inside that said, this isn't feeding your soul anymore. At the core of this book, there is a search for selfhood, for freedom. It explores the way in which our past and our pains shape us. Yes. Um, I know that after your parents died, you, you became a, a surrogate for your for your brother. How did that shape you? Because that is a huge endeavour for yeah, but I think, you know, it shaped me becoming there were a huge amount of responsibility I took on for the rest of my life, but I thought I always could do it. And it was it was odd because out of the five children, I was the fourth and I was the naughtiest one. So I wasn't the, the eldest, you know, and I wasn't the first girl and I was and so it was it fell upon me because my elder siblings were off at university, so I happened to be the one at home with Lawrence. And I don't think I was a surrogate. We were just surviving, you know. But I think what happened was uh, you know, he was much more um, gentle, beautiful soul. My brother still is. Um, um, and I just was over there few years old. He was 14. For God's sake, he lost his mother at 14. And then his father abandoned us, you know, years later, married someone else and left us in the family home. So I was running the house, you know. It was like just crazy. And, and what I, I thought, I've done it today. And I, I just took on and thought, I can do this. You know, I can do this. And I did it through marriages. I was like, oh, I can earn that money. Don't worry. If you don't, if you don't, if you want to give up your career and sit back, I can do this. Because I really thought I could, and I did. But I took on such huge responsibility that, you know, I started my own business. Well, actually, you're responsible now for 30 people, or, you know, it just became my modus operandi. And, I, I, and I'd been lucky enough that I could do that and have a beautiful life. But actually, when Deborah talked about that, that shaped me, this don't worry, it's going to be all right. Don't worry, it's going to be all right. Which I think is one of the most important things we ever want to hear in life. From anyone else. Anyone else. It's that people. Don't worry, it's going to be. It's just saying that is the most um, beautiful and comforting. And I didn't get that because of the loss of parents. But I did it for yeah. other people. And I... And it wasn't just, you know, that I'm sounding like I'm some, you know, holy figure. I certainly am not. But I wanted them to feel. And did you believe it when you were saying it? Did you believe it yourself? It's going to be all right. Yes, I do. I do believe in things, you know. Um, I'm certainly not a Bible reader. I've been growing up in the Catholic faith. I ran from religion as far as I could. Um, but the, the most repeated line in the Bible is, do not fear. Do not be afraid. And yet that's, it's the thing that traps us all. But I, I loved, and even the way she talked about writing and her little shed that she got and where she would go into this place of solitude. I, it was a time where I was going to it, and I read it back time and time again. It's a very slim book, but um, yes, she's an extraordinary writer. And that search for freedom and selfhood, is that something that you feel you have now found in your uh, personal life? I think you agree. And yes, I think, I mean, I'm on the journey, as it were. Um, I have a very rich, privileged life. And I, and I mean that with, you know, I've had 
extraordinary trauma, I have to say. I think I've had big trauma. I don't know. Yes. You know, I think I've been really knocked out in the ring. I sort of sometimes see that big glove come at me, and it's not just a knock here. It's a knock you out, Portis. You know, two divorces, loss of parents. It, it, my business collapsed during COVID. I didn't know how, it, lots of this, but I've actually soared as high as like, you know, which has been extraordinary. So I feel I'm in this place of, um, well, actually, it's it's a place where I want to feel that this is my life, my life, rather than Mary at the centre of other people's lives. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether shaken in a cocktail, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Check out baileys.com for our favourite Bailey's recipes. Your fourth book today is Devotions. The selected poems of Mary Oliver. Feminine. Absolutely beautiful. A New York Times bestseller and Oprah's book club pick. Devotion, the pepper. Is Pulitzer Prize winning poet Mary Oliver's personal selection of her best work. The result is this definitive, soaring collection, which spans more than five decades of her esteemed literary career. What do you love about this poetry? Well, I, Mary Oliver, for me, it's it, her connection to the earth is just phenomenal. And I spent so many years in urban settings, and, and boy, do I love my city. I think London's the greatest city in the world, undoubtedly. And I love living in it, and I love the pace. I love the density and the intensity of Travelled a lot in the world, but there's something in this crazy city that, because of that suppression, the angst, this creativity comes out, and I just think it is, and I think it's a welcoming, beautiful, incredible place. But I also need to connect to the earth, and Mary Oliver does that for me. Um, I wouldn't want to constantly live. I do have a place in the Slab Valley in the Cotswolds where Laurie Lee went sided with Rosie and. It's near Stroud where they're all activists, and I love it. It called to me. I had no idea it even sort of existed, but I ended up buying there. And my complete connection with my spirit, my deep-rooted self, is when I walk through the woods across the valleys, and I actually feel such a surge through me of that I actually can sit and sob with joy. Well, truthfully, and it's the most incredible, beautiful thing to do. And Mary Oliver's poetry takes me there when I'm not there. And it's and it's it's not done in a um, whimsical, poetical. It's raw. It's really raw. And how she connects with the one one poem I was reading, and she finds a turtle on the beach, and she goes out because she'll she'll go out morning, night, walking, walking that it laid its eggs and she goes back to see the eggs. And and it was quite a, she then uncovers, takes to the home and fries them up. I was like, whoa. But she knows, I mean, God knows how many of those eggs the turtle had laid. But she really 
she she's rooted in it. She's rooted in it. Which reminds me of a great title of the book by Sharon Blackie, If Women Rose Rooted. And I think the more we, women, are rooted to the earth, back to Mother Earth, the more our strength and our beauty and our love and our sensitivity and our creativity will help heal this planet. The way that she describes nature, more than describes, evokes nature, in her poetry is like no one else and the way it makes you feel what is it that you do to to stay rooted to stay grounded to 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 remind yourself of the beauty of our natural worlds so what it made me do and i found my brother doing the same is we would sit with our coffee at the table and looking out the window where i might have been reading a paper or doing something and distracted but there was we just looked and it was so delicious and he got very excited because a woodpecker came and I missed a woodpecker but there was something that connecting back to nature through that little garden you know that I've got in North London it's around us all the time and it's just about taking that time and being aware and I have to find myself during the day you know because our brain our mind goes off just connecting back connecting back to nature whether I'm walking through North London, through, you know, whether it's Regent's Park or just looking at the trees, actually just being aware of what is around you. And the other thing is, so much we don't notice. Yeah, we just need to look up sometimes. Yeah. We spend so much time looking down even as we walk. There is a world literally in front of our eyes. Yes. So I can tell you now where the three parakeets that they hang to the tree that's three gardens down. I didn't know that, but I know that now. And that we have little woodpeckers that come, but they hang up the roof two doors down on the big building. I didn't know any of this. And now I feel more connected to my space through the little birds that are outside. And how the blue tits is very interesting, this, you know. <laughs> they nip in quickly to get a piece because if the pigeons come, they will know where they're going to get a bit of the bird feed. And the robins take it off the ground. They dip down and when all the big birds have knocked it off, they just go in and hoover up. And the robins are the peaky blinders of the bird world. They're little, they get in there and they're quite aggressive. <laughs> this whole dynamic has been playing out. It's been playing out every single minute of every yes. single day, yes. the whole time. Yes. We just weren't watching. Yes. Well, we are part of it and we didn't get that. And yet we did during COVID. I think we really did. That we are all part of this beautiful ecosystem. And that is what Mary Oliver talks about as well. We are connected. We are atomically connected we are beings like the plant is or the bird is we are all part of this and we lost that sentience and we are becoming more aware we just have to make sure that enough of us connect together and when you asked about change how we make that change happen it won't be one leader or one prophet again it will be many of us becoming aware and conscious and going there is another way to be and it's beautiful and it's freeing and we have enough in this world in order to be to do this now we have enough we don't need to be we get told the economy's down well no that's because you guys set up what the economy what the economy is, is. <laughs> it doesn't it need to be that way there are better ways of doing it exactly and it was set up in the 30s by economists who didn't take into consideration all the work that women do in mm. the back to make the world 
just go around. So it's all got to change. And you know what we, people say to me? How can you be so hopeful? Because never in my lifetime have I seen such opportunity for either devastation or creation. Mm. And when I see the creativity that's going on, it's because we know we're up against it. And, you know, I think we've gone through so many apathetic years of just having stuff, stuff that we thought made us happy, when actually the joy of just looking at that little blue tip, nipping in and crabbing something, and that's where Mary Oliver comes from in my heart. We can create, we can also change, and we can protect. Yeah. Um, if we talk about protecting our natural world, um, I've read that... One of your proudest achievements you've said today is the creation of 26 Mary's Living and Giving Shops mm. for Save the Children. I shop in them. <laughs> I love secondhand. I love pre-loved. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this? How you see charity shops and secondhand clothes existing in the age of the pressures of fast fashion? Well, I started those about 12 years ago when I saw how bad fast fashion was getting, right at the peak. And, you know, I, I cut my teeth on selling stuff to particularly luxury brands to people who just didn't quite need them and hugely hiked prices with the stories that went with them that this handbag will make your life better. Well, that's just bullshit. But I was very good at it. Mm -hmm. And not realising that I was, you know, killing the planet and part of it. And I, I went to do a TV show. I did Mary Queen of Shops. And um, one of the producers said, would you redo a charity shop? And I turned up this charity shop in Orpington where the average age of the volunteers was about, I reckon, about 82, 83. And you'd hear the bus turning up outside. You'd oh. Off they'd get every day, regularly. And a part of it was hilarious, you know, because I would say to them, you can't put that out. You know, that they'd put stuff out with toys without heads on them. But someone donated it, dear, so it's going up. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, my God, where do I start here? But I, after months of filming with them, I came to love them because what I saw was this sense of duty and giving back that I certainly didn't have and most of my generation didn't have. And it was also when I saw people coming in who truly couldn't afford, you know, were coming in. I remember a young mother discovering a tennis racket and getting so excited because it was like 40p and she could give that to her little son. And I just couldn't leave it once I'd finished filming. And... The chief exec and the head of retail were two women at Save the Children. And I said, listen, I think we could do something bigger than this. Why do charity shops have to be places where people dump stuff and there's only you know, retired people in it? What if we create what I've learned to do through business, beautiful boutiques that are about donating? And the more beautiful we make it and we ask people in the community to donate their time so that they feel it's their shop and... We create these spaces that are places of joy. Let's invest in that. Let's call on people to give their time. So I rang around designers, artists, and they all gave their free time. And we opened up the first shop. And it was so successful. You know, I had great artists and musicians donating their stuff and then saying, can I sell in the shop? Can I get behind there and give hours? And suddenly this opened up and grew. And there's 26 of them. We raised 30 million over 30 million save the children by just saying actually let's not look at this as a dumping that's an old charity shop let's look at this as a place of love respect recycling and pre-loved and now it's really taken off because we have to 
because people are realising we're killing. So my daughter's generation, my daughter doesn't buy anything new. She does take a lot of mine, by the way. Um, <laughs> but she doesn't buy anything new. And, and it's part of her DNA that she is aware. A friend of mine, Tiffany Dark, who used to be the editor of Star magazine for Sunday Times, she started buy five items a year. So we're trying to give back and say there is another way. And the big thing that we need to do, you know, coming from a branding and marketing world, is we need to make this sexy and modern so that this next generation are going, yeah, I want to be with that group. And that's how I feel about the rising of the new way with consciousness. Do I want to be with that old group where it's money and lack of awareness and lack of any kind of love for humanity, but this self-interest? Or do I want to be with this group? And so for me, that's the job. And that's what I try and do through all the work that I do with brands and clients now. Do you know, I call it the giver Fs and the don't give an Fs. Do you want to be over there with the laggards or do you want this new world that we need to build? And somehow this has taken off and it's rolling now. And I call it status sentience as opposed to status symbols. Once it was great to say, yeah, I've got my Pradrama Gucci's. And now it's great to say, well, I bought that in a secondhand shop. Yeah. Right? I love saying yeah. it's rented so or it's so free loved. I. I love so it. <laughs> and uh, But we've got a long way still to go, but it is getting better. But we've got a long, long way to go. But it's this consciousness that's going to be at the heart of it. Unfortunately, we don't have a long way to go because we only have one more book left to talk about. <laughs> so have your fifth and final book this week, Mary, which is The Pocket Pema Chodron, a treasure trove of 108 short selections from the best-selling books of the beloved American Buddhist nun. Designed for on-the-go inspiration, this collection offers teachings on becoming fearless, breaking free of destructive patterns, developing patience and unlocking goodness. How has it influenced you? I started on my kind of spiritual journey probably about 15 years ago. And I have a friend, Lucinda, who, who you kind of, once you start on this journey, you sort of know other people, They sort of, you get attracted to them or you meet them and... Um, and she introduced me to Pema, uh, this Buddhist nun, who had been married twice and, you know, had discovered through a lot of pain that our true journey is inside. It's our light. And we just ignore it and we create this outward ego that we're told is acceptable and what's acceptable in society and all the conditioning that we start from a young age. And we all follow that. And then when we fall short, or think we fall short, we feel disappointed, we don't feel good about ourselves. And I just read so much of her. When Things Fall Apart was the first book I read. I was going through my first divorce. Sounds fabulous, doesn't it? And um, it was just an incredible book, which I've given to so many people. And I just had this realization that, you know, I'd got the world so wrong on so many levels. And it's a pocket book, which I've often given to people. Even when I'm out filming, I think Michelle Gunderhin had, when I was filming with her, she took one and then handed back a new version to me. Because if ever I feel I'm just going to that place of anxiety or anger or annoyance or disappointment, I'll just flip it open. There's always some little guidance in there, some beautiful spiritual guidance that is a truth, that is a truth that gets you back on that path. When... We were chatting to you before about about what your picks would be, and you selected this book. You you said that you picked it when you started your spiritual practice mm. fifteen to twenty years ago. Mm. What was that? What did that look like? What did that mean? 
it is being. It's connecting to your true self, your soul, whatever that is, whatever we call it. And each day I will read, every day I will read a piece, either whether it's from a poet, whether it's Rilke or um, one of the great sages like Pema Chodron. And my practice is to be connected to my truth and me. And so that means sometimes and many times in the day being aware that my responses are my outward persona rather than my true self and that actually my true self is free of everything. There is no judgment. And that every day I can't control any outcome, but I can respond to it. And the way that I will respond to what comes at me in life is how I open myself up to a better way of being and a more deeper, joyful way of being. And whether that's through dealing with pain, um, I have a, my older brother who's very ill at the moment, and I try and share that with my sister-in-law. On You know, he's physically ill, but his soul is still pure, and I try and connect with him on that. And it's given me the ability to say, this is me, and I don't need to live the life the way I thought I needed to live it. It's been my freedom completely. It's very difficult to express unless someone's been on it or have yeah. read it. Have you tried? Well, I've been trying, I think, in the last two years, I'm going to say two yeah. years, to live in a, a really quite different way to how I was living before. Yeah. And um, I know you've, you've talked about working off an instinctive frequency, knowing when mm. something is right. And that's exactly the yes. journey that I've been yes. on. And it's made a world of difference, yeah. um, just zooming out on a daily basis. Even this morning, I had to stop myself. I was with my partner and I was like running up and down the stairs because I had so much to do. And he just held my shoulders and he went, just breathe. It doesn't matter. None of it, it matters. Doesn't, nothing None matters. None of it matters. And that sounds so crazy when you say that. And I try and say that to my children, you know, that doesn't matter. None of it matters. Mm -hmm. um, and what matters is your self your sense of truth it, and it's very it is difficult to explain because there is no particular language to it but it's been the biggest freeing part of me um and the other week i went into the woods with a shaman it was amazing this is talking about oh Mary my book. gosh <laughs> what did you do amazing. in the woods with the shaman i just connected back to yeah. the earth and we just felt the different energies of the world and I just opened up to just being still. And, you know, she she beats you into the woods with this, this connection. She holds a circle of fire and love for you, and you just sit together. And I want to talk more about this stuff because it's so important. It, it is, you know, actually, what we're talking about here, it's the same as all the prophets, whether it's Jesus, whether mm. it's the Buddha, whether it's the, the teachings of the Vedas, the Upanishads, it's all the same. Do not be afraid. You know, it's our mind is crazy and it tells us what we should be or how we should be and society. And actually, that's not the truth. The truth is us and our inner self. And I was, the other book that was being very fundamental to that was, you know, Michael Singer's um, book, The Untethered Soul. And untethering yourself yeah. from the crap and the shit that we're told we should be and who we are. You know, falling in love with a woman, for me, it's, oh my God, what's society going to feel like? None of that matters. But my Catholic upbringing that would have just inhibited that, prohibited it, none of it matters. 
but what matters is love and truth. None of that stuff on the outside needs to affect you unless you let it. And learning to be still and be at peace is transcendental in its power. I tell you, when it really came to me, I was doing a lot of work on it. And um, when I did the High Street Report, the papers went after me, the right-wing press, because I started saying, I don't think the government's taken this seriously. Oh, but of course. (laughs) And they went for me. And I remember getting up one Sunday and opening up the papers, and there was this full page... And the headline was Mary Queen of Flops. Massive full page. And I remember going into that space of myself and just going, let this go. And my agent ringing me and going, we can get a press release. I said, I don't know. It doesn't matter. It'll be gone tomorrow anyway. It doesn't matter because actually it's not a truth and it's not me. You don't even need to read it. Let it go. It It was just really freeing. And so it's it's been my my saviour. If you had to pick one of the five books that you've brought today, and I know we've sort of meandered into other pieces of literature, other books as well, but of the five that you brought, as a favourite, as one that, I don't know, has saved your life or would save your life, would be your accompaniment for the rest of your life? If you could only have one, which would it be? Oh, it'd be Mary Oliver. Yeah. Because she brings in, Mary Oliver brings in the spiritual, the divine into her work, that is what her poetry is. And she's a, and I love poetry. My mother um, loved poetry and she used to read to us when we were kids, because five of us, she couldn't get around the bedroom. <laughs> and so she'd sit on the landing with the doors open. Oh, so everyone can hear? Yeah, how beautiful is that? And she'd read, you know, and my brothers go, I don't want that. And mama would say, tomorrow night, we'll have your story, yeah. whatever. And it was just wonderful. And, but she loved poetry, particularly Irish poetry, really. Um, so to me that brings me back to her as well and I think you know poetry when the the world is just unable to do it through prose poetry takes you to that place that is bigger and more beautiful and more expressive than we could ever hope to achieve through the ordinary written prose and and you know I talk about poetry and music as well because I'm a huge fan of music and so many great musicians are poets you know and I you know I think of the words that Nick Cave would write or you know and you think wow or Van Morrison uh, and they this is poetry and music so yeah I think it would have to be Mary Oliver. I think poetry really is all around us. Yeah. What a perfect place <laughs> to end. This has been a really beautiful experience. Um, I've loved talking to you Mary. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been my pleasure. I'm Vic Hope and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.